Hey guys, welcome back to Tap That Easy Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Walters. We traveled down to Tucson for this episode. Tamara Stanger, the infamous and amazing chef from Cotton and Copper, as well as the whole Cotton and Copper team, joined me. Uh, Tammy was actually my co-host for this episode, though. So uh, I don't know who's more excited. The town under black, uh, Vlad and Rebecca, were more excited to meet Tammy, or if Tammy was more excited to meet them. But either way, it was an awesome time. So we go down to hang out with Town Under Black Distillery, check out their facility, and then we went back to Crooked Tooth Brewing, which is one of my favorite places and my favorite people in Arizona beer, and hang out and we get to hear their story. And um, hope you guys enjoy this episode. Let's tap into Town Under Black Distillery. He knows seven languages. So. Really? Yeah. He likes the show. That's impressive. So that's one <laughs> of the like, things <laughs> that drew me to what you're doing just because it's just black metal as it gets. And I mean, we we associate what we do. I don't know what it is, but there's something about you that stood out. Aww. Not only like the dedication to history and ingredients, but you're just true to your form and unapologetic about it. <laughs> there's like a tradition, of, like a Norwegian tradition of like... Actually, it's kind of universal, but of, like, stamping your feet and, like, playing music to, like, the mash, you know, and to, to like, energize the yeast and, like, get them really into it. So we're, like, playing heavy metal. There were some heavy metal distillers that they would put the they'd put the speakers on top of the barrels to encourage. Metallica Mm -hmm. just released their own... Whiskey, and they they played a soundtrack of Metallica. So the whiskey is going to be served only at the sandbar. And make sure not to. (laughs) You know what? Don't pirate it. I mean, at the end of the day, though, it's you got to make you got to make it for your guests. It's true, you know. And if there's a there is clearly a group of people out there that uh, really really enjoy Metallica, and so they are going to definitely enjoy that whiskey. And if it gets them beyond the Jack Daniels and beyond the entry level stuff that most people have, then it's like it's just better for everybody. Yeah, that's true. true. That was a good transition. I think you need to meet everybody now. <laughs> Sean, right? only, Sean only speaks in positivities. So. I love that. I do. That is, well, let's meet. My, I got two uh, two guests. I guess you guys would be guest hosts. Sure. Just, and with it, why do we have to have labels, right? Yeah. There's five people here. Yeah, right? Five. Hanging out. Yeah. So who, introduce yourself first, my uh, uh, friend to the right here. My name is Sean Trainer. I am the... Sometimes barback, sometimes dishwasher of cotton and <laughs> copper in South Tempe. <laughs> nice. I'm Tamara Stenger. I am the chef at Cotton and Copper. Oh, okay. Uh, you're out, you're out. This, this moment, you knew this moment was going to come. Uh, I mean, I, you're going to nail I it. Know. I know. I feel like I'm on like the delicious dish. Like this, this is Rebecca Carolee. <laughs> um, some call, <laughs> sorry. Somebody's just laughing at the handshake. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, Rebecca Beck, please. Caroly. Caroly. <laughs> not Caroly. Um, and I'm a co owner of Town Under Black Distillery. With me, Vladimir Novokshinov. I always just go by Vlad because that's too many letters. Dude, I'll say it again. It's name Vladimir Novokshinov. Yeah, what was your middle like name? That. The full thing. It's Vladimir Vladimirovich Novokshinov. Wow. Yeah. Dude, that needs to be Russian, the name of Russian like name. A, a metal band right there, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Just, just but my spelt name. out in the juniper branches. Yeah. Oh. 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 I'm writing all these ideas down. These are all getting written down. 
for you guys, obviously. I'm not going to steal <laughs> anything. But uh, so we just came back from your distillery. Uh, we're now at Crooked Tooth. Uh, ben and Julie were awesome enough to open the doors to us because I thought the doors were open. But they don't open till three. But they said, "Come on in." <laughs> so, uh, so it was so cool seeing seeing your guys' your setup and just hearing the story. And Tammy and I and, and Sean as well were just blown away about so what you guys are doing. You. One thing we didn't cover at the distillery it was an amazing tour, and we learned so much. I'm really exciting excited about what you're doing, but. We didn't go into where the name Town Under Black came oh, from. Yeah. <laughs> and I know our guests want to know, so where, where did this name come from? Um, so the name, it comes from sort of a loose translation for Tucson. Um, Tucson is like a Spanish-sized version of the Tohono O'odham word, which is the local tribe here. Um, they called this region Shuksan, which means... Uh, under or beneath or at the base of black, which refers to the mountains here, uh, Sentinel Peak and Tumamak Hill, um, which are covered with black basalt. So it's sort of the place name for Tucson, and that's what inspires so much of our like spirits and our ethos is about taking from this history and taking from what's local here and what's native here and then sort of adapting it into our own thing. So we took that and riffed on it with Tucson being the town under black. I like it. Yeah. I like that it. That was her idea. And if it's distilled It's very metal. Metal. That's what I was going to say, right? Super metal. Yeah. It's a super metal. Yeah. We, did, we, yeah, we wanted something a little bit. And, and we use metal on our stills. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's, just, it's, it's just building upon mm-hmm. itself at right. this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you guys have the backgrounds are, are very, uh, very unique. And why the hell would you start a distillery? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. <laughs> <laughs> should probably take it way, way back to what were you doing before you decided you wanted to distill? I mean, it's pretty interesting. So tell me. See, this is start the, with you, the, re- the, the real question. I know. The real <laughs> I want to start, I start with you, Beck. Um, you have a very rich history, and it has a lot to do with the theme of what you distill. So you should fill us in. Yes. Um, I'm an archaeologist by day, distiller by night. (laughs) Um, So I started off doing um, ethnography and archaeology and um, I work now in the Southwest, but I've worked previously in uh, East Africa and Madagascar and uh, Egypt and Europe. Um, And that's where I sort of got into distilling and being interested in distilled spirits is uh, when I was doing field work, uh, we're interviewing potters and traditional weavers and about this history of traditional craft knowledge, which is disappearing. And in the meantime, while we're doing that, we're drinking heavily. And, you know, that's how you talk to people. That's how you get into their customs. And Tell uh, about the time when you drank the, it was like a tribe and you out drank them and they were really surprised because they were all like seven feet tall. I, my mom might <laughs> listen to this book. <laughs> Yeah, we were we were out and like uh, all these dudes are like enormous. And I know this is a like podcast. You can't see me, but I'm a petite woman. (laughs) And these dudes are like six, five and like 300 something pounds. And uh, we got into this like we were at a local place and they were having a drinking competition, just beer. And um, I guess they didn't fully appreciate like the American collegiate system and how it (laughs) trains us for these sorts of events. So 
uh, we were just chugging and I, I drained. I mean, it, they have super light lagers there. That's what they're drinking. And so, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta earn the respect of, <laughs> and you earned it. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I won it. <laughs> were they like, what the hell is this girl doing? Yeah. Yeah. Nice work. Yeah. So you were drinking a lot of the, like you were saying, a lot of the local, um, Yeah, and they're brewing banana beer. They're brewing beer out of cassava and sorghum. Um, And the reason why I got into it originally is because they have these really specific ceramic vessels in order to do it. And those are traditionally created by women. Um, And as women start doing that less and we get more Tupperware and those sorts of things coming in, uh, the tradition, you know, not only of making the ceramics disappears, but of brewing the beer disappears. Um, And so that's what sort of started this whole trajectory of being really into craft spirits and craft knowledge and reviving these traditional lost traditional and unusual spirits that's our byline that's our that's our motto (laughs) (laughs) worked it in there really yeah really organically (laughs) so as as we did the tour i seen that a lot of this the things that you use to distill it's comes from ancient traditions yeah, yeah, we're we're really inspired by a lot of the. I mean, there's this kind of idea now that distilling is sort of this industrial process and that it's a modern technology, but it's ancient. It, the distilling technology was pioneered by a woman in Alexandria in like the fourth century mm-hmm. A.D. Um, at Maria Hebrea. She invented the alembic still, and right. it's been ongoing since that time. Yeah, and just it's a. L- like she said, it's, it seems to be this industrialized thing, but this is a t- technology that farmers just did. You know, a big part of the Western economy in the colonial United States was that was you take your corn, you turn it into whiskey, it doesn't go bad anymore, you trade that. And they, they talk about the whiskey rebellion as kind of this fun note in American history because it's like, oh, they, wanted, they didn't want to pay the taxes on whiskey. But the actual issue was that they the farmers in the West didn't have paper currency. It was just, they're not going to ship this stuff out from D.C. They just didn't have it as easily. It wasn't as, as prevalent. So they just turned all their corn into whiskey and then traded it, and that was their currency. So when you know D.C. comes and they're like, well, we're going to start taxing your money, they got a little bit upset about that. So that, but it's a very simple technology, and everybody had a still... You don't need these big $500,000 stills. They're something you can build just out of mud in your backyard. So you built the still yes. coming from a background of... A lawyer. From a <laughs> they, lawyer. They, they train you a lot. So, about so lawyering, lawyering school. Right. Most of law school <laughs> is how to produce When you, t- when you took your bar test, did you learn about... <laughs> it really was a bar it test. Was a bar test. <laughs> <laughs> But you, you built the still. Yeah, I got, so she got me really into, well, tell, talk about how you got me into cocktails, and then we'll go into... Yeah, when I came back from, from doing field work, um, I was really into craft spirits and how they're traditionally produced, and that coincided, luckily, with the sort of pre-prohibition craft cocktail movement in the U.S., um, and then I met this doofus, and then we, <laughs> we sort true. of, like... Uh, we're both really into it and, and led each other down this dangerous path of trying to reproduce um, historical spirits, historical spirit, spirits that would have been made in like the early colonies in America 
and different ingredients that would have gone into pre-prohibition cocktails and bitters and amaros and and to but, do that we we needed to be able to build the the things the way they were made at that period eventually there just came to be a point where we were seeing all these spirits that just didn't really exist anymore or existed in a very weird form that had really transformed since prohibition and i just decided that i was going to just master spirits but i was just like let's go figure this out <laughs> you know real easy you know having no idea what I was getting myself into, but that's just kind of my style. As I see something, I'm just like, I'll just do it myself. How hard can it be to build a car? Which I have tried doing that with the motorcycle. Have you really? I did. I was just like, let's fix this motorcycle. I've never touched a vehicle before. It's in a, it's in a thousand it's, pieces in our backyard. It's in our backyard. Step one is complete. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. Broke apart. But it, it started to work with the, the spirits, at least. I did build a still. Um, just using, you know, there's books out there for, for home distillers and moonshiners and basically getting you started on that stuff. And I read everything I could find. And like I said, it's a simple technology. It's not hard to build these things. It's not hard to find the materials to do it. And I just started doing it. And then when we started this business, uh, it didn't seem to make any sense to start buying big expensive equipment when I could build the same thing just like I had been building all this stuff. So we got a 100-gallon still that I built the column for that goes into a wooden thumper that has another column that I made for, it, and all that stuff was, was made by me. And what's the unique thing about the, the wooden thumper? So the way that the thumper works is the best way to describe it is it is two stills in series. The, the base still is the bigger one. You heat that guy up directly, it contains your, your normal whiskey mash, or your beer. The alcohol comes out of that. It condenses into the liquid on the second still, the thumper. And then the heat, the, the, um, the heat and the vapor from the first still heats the second still up so that it is now distilling in addition to the first one. And it's just this, it's this nice little energy reaction that has to do with the, the different temperatures of the liquids as the in the first still as the alcohol level decreases the boiling point increases the temperature of the vapor gets higher which then feeds into the second still and that's able to bring that up to a boiling point because now the vapor coming in is higher than the boiling point of the second guy so basically you really are just distilling twice in a row you get the stripping run and the spirit run all at the same time. And making out of wood has some fun little benefits. And yeah. um, how many other people, Vladimir? Are... Oh, yeah. <laughs> as far as we know, we have the only wooden still in the continental United States. It was semi-popular with rum distillers in the Caribbean like a while ago couple hundred years ago i'm guessing but elder the guys who make el dorado they still use them that's why i say in the continental united states and they make a habit of whenever another old uh, old school rum distiller whenever they get rid of theirs they buy it so they have a few of them now as far as we know nobody in the united states uses them though we certainly would be excited if other people did and to let us know if so that's the case. further into that um we tasted a few of your alcohols today a few of your spirits, and there was one that was very interesting because you used some local wood. It was 
Yeah. The, you used some of the local wood. So it was the canary wood. Oh, the canary. That one's that. That's Brazilian. Brazilian. Is it Brazilian? Yeah. yeah. The, the local wood that we used, we smoked uh, pecan and a juniper. Those are both local oh, okay. woods. We did age one of our guys on canary wood, which is a Brazilian um, uh, wood that's local to Brazil that Brazilians use to age cachaça on. What is cachaça? I know you've said that a few times. Cachaça is it's basically rum. It's rum agricole? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a version of rum agricole yeah. where it's made, rather than from molasses, it's made from fresh-pressed sugar cane. And oh, they gotcha. throw the sugar cane in there, too. So it's got a much grassier vegetal flavor than a typical rum. I guess we can all t- order beer right now, right? <laughs> <We> all- <laughs> little silence. I'll, I'll pause this. I need a manly glass or a whatever glass and I just laugh my ass off. Meaning like so people get in and these glasses are like no I don't want I want to Oh yeah. yeah we serve uh, they probably have the larger version we serve ours in uh, very similar glass where it's the 13 ounce uh, okay. and uniques but yeah it's very much a thing of like I think people uh, and once again I think it's a good thing because it's just getting them out there and being like cool like I know that you and if you look at what they're doing none of their glasses are in a freezer you know, yes, there's none of this yes. like frozen pint glass nonsense that <laughs> is what has just been trained. And it's just what, you know, yeah. it's, it's what was done for so long that people accepted it as like, I only drink my beer in a cold glass. And it's like, well, it, it's, it's, it's only science uh, that if you move it from one vessel to another vessel, it actually creates more heat. I mean, like you can argue all day you want. It's just, I mean, unless you're pouring it into like a sub zero kind of thing, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's, I always, you know, used to joke about that in my early bartending days, people would be like, Oh, like. Can I get a chilled glass? I'm like, well, it's going to get warmer if I put it in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was this like, interesting article I just read recently about the Glencairn glass for mm-hmm. whiskey and how um, women's noses are so much more sensitive. They to are. Yeah. Absolutely. And how that, that style of glass just like completely like obliterates women's senses. And that, that may be why they're like traditionally thought of as like less inclined to be interested in, in spirits. And it's because we're, we're perceiving this much harsher, you know, sense than, than men are. Yeah. Well, that's because you were writing that article and you were, and Heather Green talks about it in her book too, but there was, explain the whole thing with women and super tasting. Yeah, I hope you should have this turned back on. It is back on. (laughs) (laughs) When Sean was explaining the glasses, I'm like, yeah, I'm turning it back on. It's totally true. I mean, they talk about with wines all the time that uh, women just have a much better ability to uh, taste and do all these things. Yeah, they've done like autopsies mm-hmm. and they're olfactory yeah, bulbs. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. bulbs are, they have got far more cells and far more neurons than, not to knock you guys, but. It's only science. You don't can't really argue. Yeah, that's why I left. That's true. Yeah. We were talking about how bad our brains yeah. are, anyways, in a general <laughs> sense. So, whatever neurons I started out with, that's, <laughs> right. they are long. Those got distilled. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So where were we? We, you, we were talking about the, um, not the Whiskey Rebellion. We were somewhere. A little bit. We were kind oh, of yeah. going into the background Thank of so what made them interested in distilling in the first place and some of the traditional techniques. So bringing yes. that back again, right. you work with native Arizona ingredients, which I find interesting because I also do. And I feel like... It's almost a necessity to bring that culture in and just showcase it in a way that people have never experienced it. 
So tell me a little bit about the ingredients you use. Totally, yeah. And and it's so important now because so much of Arizona's agriculture is made up of like alfalfa and things like that, which take an absurd amount of water to grow. And, you know, granted, they grow really well here. We have a lot of sunshine. But, to you know, to have a medium, to have like an opportunity to be able to grow things that are more suited for like a, a semi-arid or arid environment, like to have brewers invest in these kinds of ingredients or have distilleries invest in these kinds of ingredients would change the way that we do agriculture and how we use water in Arizona. So what we do is um, our spirits, the one that we have coming out uh, first is made out of 100% blue corn um, and it's an heirloom variety of blue corn. It's grown by the Ute Mountain Ute tribe on their reservation uh, it's non-GMO, um, and the reason why we chose that is not just because corn is, you know, a naturalized ingredient that grows locally here and grows with less water than other maybe types of grains, but because that variety of corn is more closely related to what traditional spirits, traditional corns, whiskeys here would have been made out of. The like modern um, varieties of corn, like dent corn and stuff that most distillers are producing their spirit out that are grown in Iowa and are grown in mass, those are a far cry from what corn whiskeys would have been made of in the early Americas and by those early moonshiners that we like to sort of romanticize in the Appalachian Mountains. And their products were incredible. And that's why we have this, this romantic image of them. They were making incredible products out of incredible ingredients. And that's what we want to reproduce, and we want people to appreciate that pure corn whiskey is something of value. And I think what I read was that the the corn, the closest variety, it, it was probably red corn that they had during the colonial era. And they have, like, Bloody yeah. Butcher now. Yeah, Bloody variety. Butcher yeah. is, I think, the one that's the closest, closest, closest to what the original American corn was. Uh, but blue corn is very, very close to that. And, and it's prevalent yeah. here. And it's very, blue corn's real good in the Southwest. So so that's what we use. And you nixtamalize the corn. Nixtamalize the <laughs> so, corn. So explain what that is for people that don't make tortillas but from scratch and also <laughs> how it contributes to the flavor. Oh, I'm jumping with joy. Uh, <laughs> nixtamalization is this crazy fun awesome thing i i love the the more technical weird like chemical and microbe stuff involved with distilling and, and making things nixtamalization is when you alkalize the opposite of acidify you alkalize the corn and what this does is it frees up a lot of nutrients it is something that native and uh, uh first nation people have used forever to use corn as a staple crop and there was a whole problem with um, with diseases when the uh, Europeans came into the United States and they started trying to use corn as a staple crop. They refused to nixtamalize it. God knows why. There was a well, God knows exactly why. Is because it was something that those natives did, and they were rejecting everything that had anything to do with Native Americans until they absolutely needed to eat food that was you know existed in the united states so they refused to nixtamalize their corn and they ended up with pellagra which is a severe and in their case lethal vitamin deficiency nixtamalization when you alkalize the corn it frees up nutrients and you can survive totally or almost totally on nixtamalized corn if you don't do that you are missing out on i think it's niacin is the one mm -hmm. 
But so that tradition lives on. It became um, that's how you make corn tortillas. You nixtamalize the corn. But pretty much every native indigenous group in the continental Americas did that. They nixtamalized any and all grains that they could get their hands on. There's proof of it all the way up. I think uh, I saw it in when I was reading about it, like a, a tribe that was traditionally based in what's now Idaho. We're talking about uh, nixtamalizing things. And what's cool is you can nixtamalize with ash. That's the traditional way to do it. You use pickling lime or lye now in the modern ways. It's uh, slaked uh, rocks. I don't know. It's usually you can find it at the market called cow. Yeah, <laughs> called cow or yeah. pickling pickling lime. or But it's like it's... You, get all the rocks involved but, but you, you could also calcium carbonate right yeah so we're we're doing it the the traditional way to do it is you just take the ashes right out of your fire from the previous night throw it in your corns boil it in that alkalizes it let it sit overnight and we're doing it with leftover at least partially from the woods that we are using to smoke our grains we have to buff it up with pickling lime because you can't you can't nixtamalize 50 gallons of corn with you know, basically a couple of handfuls after we're done of juniper ash. But whenever we get a wood, we throw the ashes. Whenever we smoke it, we smoke a grain on those ashes. We throw those ashes right in and try to nixtamalize some corn off of it. So juniper ash is incredibly high in calcium. Do you think that has anything to do with... Is it? I have no idea. It is. <laughs> Do you think? Okay, so it is. Okay. So maybe that contributes to something. I don't know my chemistry yeah. enough to understand the yeah. difference. I'm terrible at knowing what the different woods are. I in, know, in Native yeah. American cuisine, this is one reason why you'll find juniper a lot. They will make ash from juniper and mix it into the corn. And that contributes to a lot of the calcium intake because cool. you won't you won't find a lot of dairy in Native American foods. Cool. So I had no idea. I know from reading because the the big source I had from this was I, I like I said it was the tribe I believe that was based in Idaho, and they were talking. They were they had a, a thing published where he was just encouraging this tribe was encouraging members of their tribe to to experiment with this traditional cooking technique and they were saying be careful which wood you use because some of them are you know more acidic or some of them are more alkaline than others so i just started throwing in different woods and seeing what happened but no i had no idea so cool maybe maybe i don't know add that into your science but Ah, i I just think it's ah. cool using juniper and to begin with i use a lot of the the wild yeast because you're talking about Mm. wild yeast and a lot of your stuff you Actually, everything you use wild yeast, and I use it in bread, so juniper's great. Like, you can pretty yeah. much make bread the next day if you stick that in a slurry of flour and oh, water. But in brewing, I mean, it's got to lend to a lot of stuff. Talk about... Let's talk about yeah, the talk wild about, yeast. Tell the juniper stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, juniper is such a tradition in brewing, and then... So all of our all of our fermentations are open fermentations, so we have access to just the wild yeast that are sort of permeating the biome in our in our area. Um, but we also have gone out and collected yeast off of juniper berries. It's sort of that dusty white covering that you'll find on on juniper we'll berries. Never when find you it in the store. Like yes, that. no, it has to you have to fresh. go out. <laughs> just like on grapes too. Yeah, and on grapes. Um, I almost washed it off when she brought it in the first time. <laughs> He's like, is there something wrong like, with you? Do you need to clean this? <laughs> yeah. And she was not, not happy with yeah. that. <laughs> I, I could imagine that. Yeah, so we're going out and trying to, to find these yeasts and, and cultivate them and use them in our distilling. Um, but juniper is such a special plant, and, and it has so much 
history and integrity in the in the Southwest and all over the world. Um, we were talking about how uh, juniper branches were like a traditional gift to like establish a young household in in Norway because that's the fundamental thing that you needed to start brewing your beer, which was your livelihood and what what sustained your household. Um, so women would have these these branches of juniper and they have the wild yeast on the juniper and that'll start their fermentation but juniper also has these amazing antimicrobial properties so which would dispel the the bacteria that could contaminate your wort if you're making a beer um so they have these mythologies all over the place in the southwest in in norway wherever juniper grows there there's this inherent knowledge about the antimicrobial mm-hmm. things as dispelling evil spirits and and keeping away harm um, so we've got a juniper branch over the doorway of our of our distillery to, you know, ward off these evil yep. spirits, and we've used juniper branches and put them whole into our into our fermentation. Which did not go well. No, that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but it started well. There's potential. We'll keep yeah. working on it. But yeah, we got those uh, from Mount Lemon here. Yeah, we got some nice alligator juniper. So it's not the not the kinds that normally end up. Yeah, it's not the common yeah. the juniperous. Commonest. The ones that local down here. It was, it was fun. It was cool to see how it went. We just took the branches and right in the beer. And Chucked them right in there. They fermented. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so utilizing open fermentation, do you feel that it inhibits your ability to change the location? No, because we actually don't enjoy the biome in our current location. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so we, we, and you know, this is, you know, edit this out, but we started <laughs> yeah. distilling at home Turning for years. Yeah. Right. Sure, sure. And we had just by the luck of the draw, an amazing biome in our home. I don't know if it's the, the, the plants that were growing around there or just, we, we got lucky. Dogs. Our dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, we introduced the dogs to the distillery, yeah. and they did not improve the biome. No. <laughs> so, um, but yeast live on all kinds of things, on insects, you know, on plants, and, and it's just whatever happened to be there was really working for us, and we were making spirits that we were really happy with, really proud of, and then we got, because of the, the rules for the TTB, we have to have our distilling location before we get a permit in order to legally distill. So we got our location um, based on what was the cheapest possible available location, mm-hmm. having no money. And we started brewing there. And to our huge dismay, we were not able to replicate what we had been doing at home. And, and we, were, we were fraught with yeah. infections and, and all sorts of things because we were competing with the, the local biome. And a big problem was that because I had had such this great biome at home, it, I didn't learn how to control my ferments very well. That was a very big learning thing as I thought I could just take what was at home, which as I figured out later, I was under pitching thing. Bacteria was doing a lot of the work. My conversions were poor, which is great if you want to encourage bacteria growth. That's a wonderful way to encourage bacteria <laughs> growth, which you definitely may want is to under pitch and then mm-hmm. have poor conversions because that leaves plenty of complex sugars for the bacteria to eat. But when you take that into a new place and you have a, an, a bacteria that you don't want, that gets real bad real quick. And I had to learn really quickly that I was not taking very good care of my ferments, which is kind of hard to do when you're doing distilling because it's, it's a different kind of ferment from a beer distillation. And because it's not legal to do that outside of a commercial area there's not right. hobby level information there's not like a not a lot of books you can get you see you go to a, you know go to 
Barnes and Nobles, there's shelves of books on home brewing. There are two books that you can get right now on Amazon and Amazon only on how to home distill. And they're both made by the same company. Yeah. Interesting. So there wasn't a lot of YouTube diversity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. YouTube versus and a lot of that's not good. There's a lot of forums and a lot of that's not good. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, it's rough. So I had to learn the hard way. It took me a long time to figure out how to get those things healthy. And, but yeah, eventually we conquered that. Yeah. So we had to alter essentially the biome in our distillery to be more suited towards what we were doing in that space. Um, but we're not coming at it from this sterilized brewer's perspective. We're coming at it from this right. traditional, you know, way of making spirits, which is uh, doing what works and avoiding what doesn't work. Right. So, right. So it's unfortunate because I think we both would have really loved to move into that place and do much, much wilder ferments than we do. Sure. We're getting back into that now that we've kind of reined in this infection and this this wild yeast has kind of beat back this guy. And you know, I, I told you when we did the the uh, tour that it used to be that if I left a, a mash out for six hours it was ruined Yeah, and now I can leave them for days two or three days before pitching yeast and they're completely fine but the downside of that is we don't have the wild guys anymore wild guys are bad but I would love to have some wild guys in there well and what we've been doing to supplement that now right. is these experiments where we will basically take little um, like jars of mm-hmm. really yummy material for yeast and we'll just plant them around the desert, all over the desert and all these different environments and we'll just see what natural yeasts yeah. are going there and then if we can take those back to our place and we can work in a sterile environment and to mm, isolate yeah. and cultivate those Been going to, or she's been going to, to local trails. Yeah, I like to hike. You can't see him. I He's enormous. This man's enormous. He I doesn't hike at all. My exercise is playing Bloodborne drunk on the, on the couch. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, she takes them out there and yeah they get tons of fun yeast. it's really cool you just put this mash out there it's perfectly happy put it under a cactus come back two days later and it's fermenting and it smells like the best thing you've ever smelled in your life so eventually we're going to build that into a whole yeast thing it's just hard because you need some lab space which we do not have no space for that in our 500 square foot, 500 square foot. <laughs> powered by what? what what's the power source? bear power bear, bear power, power. <laughs> Ex- explain, explain that yeah that, we, we got a little display of what yeah. bear power is but so basically you took us in the back and you showed us the corn when it starts to sprout and that's very important having green corn like sprouting corn explain why and then explain the bear power and how that <laughs> yeah one of the things that we were helping. really interested in sort of reviving is this idea of malting corn because of course single malts are made out of malted barley and the reason why we malt what the process of malting is basically just to take a grain and start it to grow and so it produces a little sprout called an acrospire and what that does is that it sort of tells the the little grain to start producing the enzymes which will break down the internal starches in it and and turn them into sugars that are more easily digestible so that the grain has the power to grow into a plant. It's the energy. Um, So what we do is we trick it. We trick these grains into starting to grow and that releases the, the enzymes that we need to convert starches into sugars, which yeasts like to eat. And that's how we're able to make more efficiently alcohol um, because the yeast eat the sugar and they poop out booze. (laughs) Um, So barley has an insane diastotic power. It is really, really, really like terribly efficient grain. I mean, splendidly efficient grain at converting 
Now, corn. Corn's the opposite in every way. It has the best, best, best starch storage. It's as far as any other plant goes. It stores carbohydrates more efficiently, tighter, better than anything else. But it has very, very little diastatic power. But if you're operating in these places where barley isn't growing, then what are you going to do to make alcohol? You can't, you know, we're looking at this from a historical perspective, and barley just wasn't growing here rampantly, but corn was. And so to make spirits out of corn, you needed to have some sort of enzymes to make a conversion. And so either they're malting corn, and they're getting the enzymes through that purpose, or what they're doing is they're chewing up the corn and then spitting it out because we have that enzyme in our spit to make it easier for us to digest that stuff. And that's what chicha is, which is a spirit or it's a, a beer that's made right. in South America. And they have the same tradition in Tibet. I mean, people have universally realized this. There's Norwegian epics about the, the, the invention of alcohol and they're about bear spit interestingly enough <laughs> bear spit <laughs> the bear power is that she calls me bear that's my nickname because i am i'm literally 300 pounds um they they knew that already because they pictured a distiller in their mind and they saw <laughs> a bearded man a, with a bearded long hair 300 pound man yeah <laughs> uh, and i got the, those nice russian farmer jeans so yeah. i'm big and fat and i can move heavy things so our entire distillery, the premise of our distillery was that it is all operated on bare power, which is that we have no automated systems. We don't have augers to stir our, right. you know, our, our grains. We don't have, we, we, when we malt, we spread it out on the floor and we don't have machines that'll, that'll turn it and distribute it. We just have a giant bear lumbering around <laughs> using his massive muscles to schlep things right. and hoist them. <laughs> I figured it out once because we don't use a, a pump to get things. We like to go on grain, so a, a good pump that can move mash with the grain into it from a fermenter into a still is about two to $3,000. And instead, I just put it in a bucket and carry it. And I figured out once that I usually move about 900 pounds of liquid in, God, it's 45 minutes? Yeah, about oh, wow. 45 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so when I come in and operate off of yeah. rodent power, it's... <laughs> we call her rat. Yeah, it's, it's That's her significantly less efficient. <laughs> yeah. But she's pinky in the brain. She's yes. no, she is the world. pinky in the brain. <laughs> she's the brain. I think you guys need a new hashtag. Hashtag schlep and hoist. <laughs> I like that. So, um, Tammy, too, one thing that you were very impressed with was the, were the ingredients that they Absolutely. used. Absolutely. Right? And, and also something stood out to me when, we, when you're explaining your flagship, which is a, a whiskey with cocoa in it or co chocolate flavors in it. And it's especially cool to me because it's a zero-waste product. You take a husk and you use that... Um, Will you explain that? And then I, I also want to go into the idea of fermenting corn and chocolate together because yes. that was super yeah. cool. Yeah. So. so our flagship spirit is um, Six Sky Whiskey, which is a cacao-flavored whiskey. Um, and this comes out of this tradition, unsurprisingly, considering <laughs> what, what, what we do. <laughs> but um, so chocolate, was for, when it was first sort of used and domesticated, um, it was fermented into a beer. And it was fermented into a beer with corn because corn is so successful at making beer. 
Um, so the Mayans were drinking this beer that was like a super frothy cacao corn like we would consider a beer today except without hops um and so we took that sort of tradition and we took our twist on it to do a whiskey made out of blue corn that's then infused with cacao husks which are a natural byproduct of the chocolate making process so we have this awesome chocolatier in tucson um, called Monsoon Chocolate, and they have these great um, practices where they trace the origin of their chocolates, and they're super sustainable, and they have relationships with the people that they source their cacao from. Um, and so we get cacao husks from them. They, sh- you know, they um, basically dehull the cacao bean. Um, they use the nibs to make their chocolate, and then we take their trash and we put it on our whiskey and we let it sit for months and it infuses with a sort of light flavor of cacao and it's not sweetened at all. Um, so it just has that bitter, salty chocolate flavor in an otherwise sweet, naturally sweet corn whiskey. Right. Which is cool. It's so cool. The, the use of those ingredients and then some other things stood out the idea of of the banana yucca and experimenting with all these native ingredients um, was really exciting to me. So the cool thing about what you're doing is you're not stuck to a certain system. So you can experiment with a lot of cool stuff. So tell us basically some of the ideas that you have floating around. Yeah. There's so many awesome distilleries um, in Arizona who are doing gins and who are doing rum and who are doing um, the things that you sort of classically associate with distilleries. And that allows us to have a sort of a lot of play in what we do. Um, So we're doing things where we're looking at um, historic and, and um, sacred beers that were made over the years primarily in the Southwest and in Northern Mexico, where we're taking ingredients um, from what was locally available and then um, what was traditionally made into a beer and then taking it a step further and then distilling it into whiskey. So we're looking at using acorns um, as like a bittering agent to make an Amaro or using Arizona black walnut, which is a variety of walnut that's native to here. And that's what Nogales is, is the Spanish word for walnut. That's what they're named after because there's so many walnut trees growing down there. Um, and we have this amazing access to all of these different varieties of foods that are growing in the Sonoran Desert. And Arizona has this incredible range of biomes that span from the desert to Canada. Right. I mean, just in, in Tucson, if you go up Mount Lemon, you get every single biome. And we have all of this opportunity to use these different ingredients. Um, so we're using cactus fruit and cactus leaves, nopales, yeah. being able to roast those and ferment them, um, make them into sort of a almost tequila-like drink. Um, banana yucca fruit is something that we're really interested in doing and that one does actually apparently have a history of being distilled that's not just a beer that was made that is a couple hundred years ago was made in tucson into a spirit as well as we have our own uh, mezcal that is gone yeah mezcal was made here um until i don't don't prohibition about but like the the early 1900s prohibition came early to arizona right um, and this was before the denomination of origin was set for Mexico, so right. that only certain 
uh, states in Mexico can be legally called a mezcal. So we had a, a mezcal in southern Arizona. That was made from a unique agave that was uh, cultivated by the ho-ho-ho-ho-gum. Hoo-hoo-gum. Hoo-hoo-gum. That's the right way to say it. <laughs> um, the hoo-hoo-gum used to cultivate uh, Murphy agave, and they said that they... Archaeologists have figured out that they had 10,000 at least acres of cultivated Murphyi agave, and they would make it into pulque or pulque. Pulque, yeah. okay. And then when the Spaniards came, they introduced distillation, and so we had our own mezcal in Tucson made from a species of agave that was in primarily, if not only, the Tucson and southern Arizona region. And as far as we know, it doesn't exist anymore, although it may very well be still moonshined in northern uh, Sonora, it's certainly not Well, Seoul. in northern yeah. Sonora, it's Bacanora. Okay, well, I don't know. Is there, there you go. do we know that that's <laughs> Murphy Eye, though? That's no, it's not Murphy yeah, right. Eye. Murphy Eye is super rare right. now. For the extent that it was cultivated, historic, or, you know, in, in a, yeah. these ancient societies, it, it, it is very rare now. So that's, as far as we know, there's nobody actually making that mezcal that was made in Tucson, because that's, the, even the stuff that's in Sonora is using a different agave variant. So I don't species. know what the fuck the original question was, but, <laughs> but uh, mesquite beans, that's another thing oh, that yeah. we're doing. Listing off ingredients. Oh, no, yeah, yeah you're, still, yeah. you're still on track. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Tammy's making sure. Yeah. 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 We can dive down the mezcal wormhole if you guys want to start talking about Oh, God, that. mezcal yeah. is my favorite spirit. I, Here for, we go. for somebody who Here makes whiskey, I actually don't love whiskey <laughs> in its, you know, in the form that we sort of know it, which is like... Uh, like a, a grain bill that's composed of corn and, and wheat or rye and barley and then is aged on right. oak. I'm like, I'm tired. I'm done. Like, okay, great. Like, thank you. It's sweet. It's very, very sweet, right. which is also something that's really, and I'm going to completely go off on a tangent now. <laughs> Do it. It's hilarious Do it. to me because we think of whiskey as such this masculine drink. Like, that's what men drink. Men drink brown whiskeys. But of all the spirits out there in the world, whiskey is... And especially bourbon. Yeah, corn, because corn is the is sweetest spirit. It's incredibly sweet. That's you the know. sweetest spirit you can And then the wood have. adds all these, vin- yeah. oak adds all these vanillins and these caramels right. and these fruit flavors. And you have this incredibly sweet, smooth spirit that's infinitely drinkable. I get it. It's delicious. But to have it be this this masculine yeah. product is kind of absurd. So, you know, you're supposed to like throw it back and be like, <clears throat> I'm a real man now. It's like, yeah. oh, I ate this cake aggressively and yeah. now my tummy hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do love mezcal and mezcal has so, I mean, the esters are just off the chart. I am fascinated by the fermenting and the cuts things that they do because they do, I think the somebody sat down and figured out how many strains of yeast they have in mezcal and it's at least 200 yeah so like if if like a whiskey will have like you know even an open fermentation whiskey here will have like maybe six strains of yeast in it and the average mezcal will have 600 you know it wow they have an incredible like native biome down there that's imparting all of these amazing yeasts and it's all if it's traditionally done it's all open fermentation it's all done in the wild right that's the other thing is they encourage the wild fermentation where so much of european distillation is about monocultures and decreasing the numbers of yeasts that are in things we're definitely taking a page we're we're going from that book (laughs) yeah we're, we're going yeah um but they also the cuts thing is really fantastic too and i don't have this confirmed but she was telling me that she got from a source that the way that they do their cuts is they don't use water to dilute 
the the final product, they use tails. So, so to explain, uh, a right. spirit okay, will come out of the still at a very high proof. It's very concentrated ethanol. Um, and then what you drink, so if it comes out of, out, of the dis, out of the still, say, at like 80% ethanol, and what you're drinking in a bottle might be 40% ethanol. And the reason the discrepancy there is because it is watered down to something that is more palatable and less burny. And also better. I mean, the water does free up flavors that you would not get. With and a, and with it releases a, a lot of oils right. and stuff, so you get a, a, a better product out of it. Um, but mezcal will often be not watered down at all. It will, they will take the tails, which is the later run of the distillate that's coming out of the still, and which has naturally a lower proof because it's incorporating uh, things that volatize later in the run. But much more flavor, both good or bad. Yes. And, bad. and so they're in inputting more flavor into these spirits, and that's why it tastes so delicious. But the result of that is that to get that right, you have to be real good at fermenting because uh-huh. bad flavors are going to come through. That's where bad flavors come through is the end, the tails, the, the more watery parts that they use to water it down. And it's meant to be imbibed young. Yeah, and you have to, you have to be really careful about oxidizing it too because you can't just throw that in a barrel for it. They don't. You can, but they don't. No, they're usually stored in like big glass jars. Yeah. Yeah. They, mm-hmm. they don't age them. They don't cover them up with wood. So you've got to have your ferments in order. You've got to know what you're doing. To me, and this is yeah. a very, is you know, I'm, I'm two beers in now, so I can say what I want. But <laughs> oak is like the ketchup. Yeah. Bourbon I, is yeah. barbecue. I love, I love oak. I love what it does. <laughs> I think it's a bit <laughs> overused. I would like to see. Uh, it's not even that it's overused. It's that it's, that's it. That's it. That's it in the United States. When you get a whiskey, you get a brown whiskey, it's aged on oak, whether it's American, French, or the, I forget what the Japanese variant is called. But that's... Tom Mizunara? Yeah, Mizunara, yeah. And if you get a European whiskey, it's aged exactly the same. It's aged on oak. There are so many other woods that you can use, and one of the, the samples that we gave you guys, I think we talked about already, was the canary wood, the Brazilian yeah. wood. But also... Not a lot of cultures besides the Western, like European American cultures, age their spirits on wood at all. They'll age in clay, they'll age or in clay they'll not age at all. Mm-hmm. China, I'm so upset. I know I freaked out with you guys, geeked out so much with you guys about <laughs> Chinese distillation when we were at the. Okay, the so so now that we're down this path, mm. Chinese distillation. Yes, okay. I want you to explain the thumper and the method of. Hanging certain proteins. Oh, okay. ah, yes. You want to do pachuga use, and then I'll use talk both about culinary yeah. and so, pachuga is delicious. You do the let's pachuga. Just get that out of there right there. So let's let's just get into <laughs> I think that. We real can quick. vibe on that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pachuga is real good. Yeah. So <laughs> pachuga comes out of this like special sort of holiday tradition out of infusing mezcal with fruits and with spices, um, and then distilling it with a like piece of meat, like a piece of chicken or a piece of turkey or like a ham. Um, hanging inside of the still so that the meat is steamed with the distillate as it distills. Um, and we really love that idea. And we wanted to do that with our corn whiskey, so we built this wooden still to use as a pachuga still um, so that we could, A, you know, infuse it with all kinds of crazy stuff right. that we like, but we also had the idea of infusing it with, like, 
fresh green corn where you can get like if you've ever had tamales like green corn tamales um it's a delicious flavor and to infuse our whiskey with the roasted corn and and sort of the different expressions that you can come up with based on that yeah. technology. Because everything comes in on that wooden stone. And, and that's the beauty it. of Tucson, too. Sorry, but some no, of yeah, this yeah. food you will never find anywhere oh, but yeah. Tucson. You could toss a burrito in there. There's a, a distiller. Oh, yeah. yeah. People have done pizza. There's a distiller that did a pizza pachuga. Yeah. But we're going to start with corn. <laughs> anyway, anyway, back, back no. to the... Yeah, let's what? talk about by Joe. Oh, by Joe and solid state fermentation. So the cool thing about this thumper is because the way that thumpers work is they're essentially powered off the vapor from the primary still, you can take the same build. Instead of putting mash in the primary still, just put water in there, and you all of a sudden have a steam-powered still. Let's let you do this really, if you haven't noticed, I'm really into the technical sides of the distilling stuff, uh, is you can do what's called solid state fermentation, which is how Chinese baijiu is made. And baijiu is probably the oldest alcohol, distilled ethanol alcohol product that exists. As far as we know, there's a lot of people tracing back uh, uh, Irish whiskeys, I think, to 1500 or 1300. We know that baijiu predates that. There are some that claim to be over 900 years old. And um, what they do, which is very, very different from European-style fermentation and distillation, is instead of grinding the grains up, putting them in water, putting in enzymes, what they do is they utilize mold, bacteria, and yeast colonies that will eat the solid rice straight, convert it into sugars, the yeasts will then eat that and convert it into ethanol, all without having any liquid involved in producing very liquid, very little liquid. So what you really get is these kind of nuggets of residual rice and sorghum protein that are just soaked up with the ethanol that the yeast has created. And when they distill this, they don't. it's not a liquid. You don't boil the liquid. You put it in and you throw steam on it until the ethanol evaporates up out of the sky. And what's really cool and unique about this particular method is by not putting the grains in liquid, it heavily favors the molds and the fungi. Which is totally what you want to hear. Yes. I know how much you guys love your moldy moldy spirits. (laughs) But they produce ridiculous flavors and they Mm -hmm. can do so many things that bacteria and yeasts cannot do. And if you go through a laundry list of the things that are included in da chu, which is the um, what they what the Chinese baijiu producers call their yeast, is da chu bricks. It's a ridiculous assortment of molds, fungi, yeasts that can do all kinds of things that you never see in the monocultures that we have in in uh, American and European brewing. So now that you've settled in for your ten hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> There's this one, and it's analytic. So why does the thumper, what, what is involved with that? Why is that? Oh, I thought we already did that. Did we? Why that's good for solid state fermentation. Oh, why that's good. So because you can, instead of in the primary, good job. Like Eric's being like, good job, corral, reel him in. Um, because you can take out the mash in the first guy and put in water, you can distill entirely with steam, and then you don't have to worry. You don't need to have a liquid in your still at all. You can just be throwing in vapor, 
that will heat up any ethanol in there. It won't cause any damage to the grains. It won't burn anything because the boiling point of water is obviously going to keep it under the point where it starts charring or getting those Maillard reactions with proteins and fats. And you can just steam the crap out of anything. And as long as you collect what's left off of that and condense it, you can ferment and distill something without ever having a liquid touch anything in your entire process. That's super cool. Yeah, I'm so excited. I, that's really the next step is I really... But that's one of the things where she was talking about getting a more water-appropriate grains. Sorghum loves the desert. Sorghum is great in Arizona. Desperately want sorghum to be and grown And we have here. native... Not native, but naturalized, yeah, we have naturalized different varieties grains. here. And they, they love the sun. They do great in low-water situations. The grains, that's what Baijiu is primarily made out of. They make it out of rice as well, but it's primarily sorghum. But they also use rice and barley and all, pretty much everything. Um, <clears throat> and you can also use the stalks of sorghum to create essentially what is a rum or a cachaça. So say I'm sold right now, and I, I'm, like, I'm like, all right, I want to go buy a bottle yeah. of that coffee whiskey. One day. So, one... so explain where you're at with your distribution and the loopholes you're going through and when possibly Phoenix people <laughs> can try some of this delicious. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, we intended to open last year, if you follow our Instagram, um, yes. at, at Town on the Black, <laughs> um, you'll saw that we intended to, we had a, an opening date set, and then suddenly the government shut down. And so all of our permits, which previously had like a three-day turnaround, uh, were just suddenly stalled. And so three months later, we have finally heard about the label submittal that we we put in our application for last year um so we are almost almost ready to be on the market we've got our product ready um and as soon as we are able to get around with our printer and just get our little paws in there and slap those labels on the bottles put the spirit in the bottles right then we'll be on the shelves Fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully next month. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, nice. Cool. So people that don't follow Town Under the Bo- Town Under Black on Instagram, I highly encourage it. Every once in a while, I see little cocktail recipes with a huge piece of history attached to it, why things came about, and it, it's really interesting. And um, I don't know. I, yeah, I'm I highly an, encourage that. An infrequent poster, but when I do, I'm very <laughs> verbose. <Yeah. laughs> I feel like you use a lot of your background, though, the archaeological and just the storytelling. Yeah, if I didn't, uh, if I wasn't able to work my, like, eight years of college into doing this distillery business, I'd feel pretty fucking stupid. (laughs) I haven't been able to work any of my college. Yeah, you have, because you're able to... And I am pretty fucking stupid. You're able to, like, read the guidelines and use your lawyerly knowledge to to read the code books and... Ex-lawyer knowledge. That's how we got such a quick turnaround on huge when you're dealing with the TTB. Yeah, it's really nice. Uh, For people that don't understand that listening, perhaps, it is not as simple as producing mm-hmm. a product and then sticking a sticker on the bottle and sending it out. It's uh, really, it is the really. The government is very, very specific right. about what you can and cannot say on your bottle. 
Um, I believe actually Tito's Vodka just went through this whole thing with the Supreme Court saying handcrafted. Oh, yeah. Yes. There is actually nothing. Real hard. That, yeah. Yeah. It's, there basically is no legal uh, yeah. standard for what consists as handcrafted. Which is upsetting, but whatever. Which means they have to take it off? Uh, or they want it? No, that was it's the, technically the, it's that there's not enough information and there is no standard for yeah. it, so you can technically say it because there's no grounds uh, for you to say otherwise. Anybody could say it. Then. Yeah, and that's, yeah. Yeah. so you can just buy distillate and then run it through your still once in Austin, yeah, Texas. You sure and can. You can and, you, and, and you can call it handcrafted in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. So as a consumer, to keep yourself educated, if you want to buy mm-hmm. a local product and have it be actually made locally and be reinvesting in your community... Look on the back of your bottle, and if it says, you know, distilled and bottled in, uh, or if it says distilled in Illinois, then it's from a... Then, Indiana's then, the big one, MGP. Yeah. MGP yeah. If yeah. it's from Indiana, then you're buying mm-hmm. distillate that was produced by an exceptional Well, it's great stuff, facility, but it's not local, yeah. yeah. An enormous, exceptional mm-hmm. facility, and then your local... Um, spirit producer was buying it and then repackaging it and then is selling it to you at a premium yeah there's nothing wrong with i mean we get it's every time we talk about this so many people will get upset at us because we're not dissing mgp they do make great stuff there's nothing wrong with that what's wrong is when people sell that as local because it's not and or handcrafted there are if you're if you're taking yeah. your hand and you're pouring a bottle of source distillate into right. your thirty gallon <laughs> still and then rerunning it and then bottling right. the exact same product. So they're, what they're, do you call it when you play black metal for your grains to make? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happens when you put your speakers over your mash? That is awesome. That is, yeah. It's it's garage band spirits. We're <laughs> in a garage. We are literally in a garage. Yeah. Well, and for some of those things, when you're talking about, and this is you know circling back on the whole thing where I you know I'd ask like, are you happy where you are? Because with wild fermentation, when you're talking about lambic beers yeah. and palenques, when you go down into Oaxaca and everything, it takes on a lot of what's around it. Um, you know, if you're down in, I believe it's Zoquilan. Uh, there are bananas and mangoes that grow in that area. So your mezcal will taste like bananas and mangoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll, you'll pick up those things because they're just natural, naturally in the air. Um, and it's such a huge part. And I know with Jester King, uh, with their brewery, they will not uh, move their location. And they have turned down multiple offers to do a second one because they don't. It's all open wild you know, beers. And they can't replicate that anywhere but that area in Austin, Texas. Exactly. Um, yeah, and there's this there's this debate sort of right now about whether <clears throat> is there ter- terroir in spirits? Can, are you able to get that sense of place from a spirit that is distilled down to an ethanol? And I believe that there completely is, but it has absolutely. to be at these estate or local distilleries where are doing it in their they have their you know the mm-hmm. volcanic soil and their local mm-hmm. culture and what is growing around them that completely influences what goes into producing those yeasts and producing those esters and how they're roasting it or how they're processing their their grains or their agave or whatever, their fruit or whatever they're doing. And it all goes into those flavors that come out in the distillate. And I truly believe that. But when you are getting a whiskey from a plant, there's not going to be any terroir. It doesn't matter where the grain is grown, if it's grown in Iowa or where it's coming from, because... And if you're coming from a distillery in Arizona or if you're coming from a distillery in Montana because they're all buying the same grain that right. was grown 
mm-hmm. in you know in the Midwest, and it's genetically modified, and, and it's that, yeah. all the same, and it can produce a great product, but is it a local product? Absolutely not. So what we want to do, and we are very small right now, and just opening up, and because of the the ways that the TTB regulates us. We had to have a distillery space before we were ever legally able to start distilling spirits. So we have having no backing, having no money, having no investors, having no loans. Right. We have the smallest, most affordable place possible. So start buying our spirits when they come out, (laughs) because every dollar that you send to us, that goes into us being able to have a facility that is on land where... We're getting this, we're cultivating this bio. We're getting this amazing sense of the Sonoran Desert. And that's what we're about. And so unique. Yeah. The ingredients yeah. you're using, the way you're doing it, using your background, understanding like ancient cultures yeah. and bringing that out. It's, it's something completely unique. You can't find it anywhere else. So, totally I mean, that right there is a se- huge selling yeah. point. I'm going to violently shove into this. Yes, do it. Do <laughs> but going back to Sean's point about not wanting to move. I desperately, desperately want to capture the natural microbes here. But the problem is, how do you do that when all of our crops are not native and they're not naturalized? When we're growing alfalfa, when our streets are filled with California palm trees, when all of this natural, like we were talking about with the, the Murphy agave that were naturally cultivated here, are gone. They're not here. Like, you can't see them in Tucson anymore. We've been completely supplanted with... Uh, a bunch of very commercially profitable crops, you're not going to get the same yeasts off those. How do you capture that traditional microbiome when so much of the plants that support it are just not here anymore and they're not a big part of the Arizona state? We've evolved. So, I mean, it's evolving too. It'll never taste like it tasted 100 years ago. It is sad. Unless you go to the farthest reaches, reaches of the desert, which is possible maybe. No, yeah. I but, mean, we are we are doing our best. But, I mean, agriculture yeah. does change everything. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's cool to capture. We have the opportunity now to capture all these different things. You know, like, the we have this ancient, like, pulque, but then the Spanish come in and they distill it. And now we have mezcal. And then we have the development of, like, the railroad and stuff through Arizona. And now we have this influx of a Chinese population. And we have their input and their technology and their the types of things that they start growing. At right. the Mission Gardens here in Tucson, they've got a Chinese garden where they're growing low lo- quats. <laughs> but I mean, I this, this is this is culture in Arizona, though. Mm-hmm. I oh, mean, yeah. the transplanted culture, and it always has been. And that's why it's always been that's, so that's confusing. Point, yeah. What is Arizona food? What is Arizona culture? Because it's a mix of transplanted people with natives that have been here since the beginning of time. That is a very good point. Yeah, and it's totally exciting, and we have the opportunity, oh, I keep using that word, but <laughs> we really do, to to use all of these different things, and some of them are native, and some of them are naturalized, and some of them are just coming into play now, and all these different techniques, and they are purely an Arizonan product, because we have all of these inputs. Yeah. End point. Cool. <laughs> and and per, perhaps right. the food now using the same ingredients is more delicious than it was no, absolutely. several hundred years, years ago. I, I totally <laughs> so, agree. Because we have salt yeah. and I'm spices. Not, I'm not at all one of these romantics that's just like everything that's old is good and everything that's new is bad. But I do, I do want to be aware of both of them and absolutely. use both of them absolutely. when they make a better product. And the point I was trying to make about microbes is it's hard. You can't go back and recapture 
things like that, wild yeasts in, in Arizona have died and are just gone. And there are wild, um, like I was saying with the Murphy Eye yeasts, that's almost gone. It's protected now in Arizona by state law. You can't harvest them because they are once the biggest uh, crops, food, alcohol, thread, everything that they could use these for. Once the biggest crop in Arizona is now almost dead. And that's it's hard to both appreciate and use the past and the future if you kill the past. That brings up a really good point, though, about sustainability, about the ethics of what we do, because so much of the ingredients that we want are ingredients that are foraged, but how do you do that sustainably? And how do you do that with a knowledge of what these things mean to the people who live here and how to to use them in a sense that keeps them and and preserves them and keeps them populating but also to value them and to be able to benefit off of them the way that we've as human beings have always benefited off of our local environment which is especially hard at distilling because you need 50 pounds of something to make enough spirit to get clear cuts to get a good sense of that's what the hardest yeah. part of foraging because yeah. you you don't go and take everything you see you're supposed right. to take 10 percent yes and that's, anything more than that you're taking away from the environment so as you want to use a foraged ingredient you just can't go collect in a tiny area you have to spread out and spend countless hours oh, trying yeah. to track it down a lot of people don't understand that yeah i think you can just go get 30 pounds of wolfberries or something. Right. Oh my god! Where yeah, you you just you just can't. It's no. it's that's why I think it's cool. You're doing small batches of stuff because it makes it a little bit more possible. Yeah, we're doing extremely small batches, but that's also a really good point to bring up about pricing because you know somebody could be a locally produced spirit, but if they're getting you know Monsanto corn, then they can price it at something that is very competitive, very low price, similar to the industrial products that you have on the shelf. But if we're going out there and the time that it takes for us to ethically forage these ingredients, and then the time it takes for us to go back home and process, process and, and make them. And, you know, we're, we're operating on bear power. This is not, <laughs> we can't leave the distillery and let it just keep running. Every single thing we do is truly handmade because we do not have the resources. Oh, I sleep there, yeah. Yeah, Vlad sleeps at the distillery every... Three or four days a yeah. week, yeah. Um, and is running the stills. It's a 24-hour job. Run them until three, wake up at six, turn them back on. Yep. Yeah, and so what we're doing is going to inherently be a more expensive product, and it's not because we're marking up the price to make a right. profit. We don't make any profit. <laughs> <laughs> we're just super into doing this and being able to keep doing this by just sustaining ourselves that's why it's the message is important i mean without the message people don't understand the value so like pushing that idea and the message and how it's uniquely arizona and nothing else super huge i mean we're we're not just southwest we're arizona yeah tucson is like the heart of arizona oh yeah (laughs) sorry phoenix (laughs) sorry phoenix so what is your Because being on the on the front line uh, in the bar scene, uh, being able to talk to the guests and uh, discuss these things, I always say like, "What's your elevator pitch?" Like, I I mean, 
we're now on like an hour plus <laughs> so into this podcast and you can't condense that or you have to condense that into something that you can tell a guest immediately. Before, um, yeah, sorry. Our, our elevator pitch. so bad. Go pee. <laughs> I don't even need you. I don't know why you're here. Okay. That's a good He's like, I pee in the elevator. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I, I just always ask, because yeah. I mean, amongst in this conversation of why certain boutique spirits cost uh, a premium, you know, uh, I would say less accessible price than the industrial products or whatever. And I, I think for some people, it's no no different than obviously we're at a really amazing uh, craft beer brewery here down in Tucson. But, you know, their beer is not the same price as Bud Light on tap. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, so I always tell people, like, you know, like, we only have a certain amount of time with guests to tell them about a product before they're just like, yeah, I, 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 I don't want to hear if. 50 minute long spiel i just i want something in my glass yeah i can give it to you in five words Bam, give it to me lost traditional and unusual spirits that's what we're all about is we're about reviving historic recipes and ancient recipes that have been lost to time we're about making things the traditional way using traditional products traditional grains heirloom grains ingredients that have been grown here and made into beers for thousands of years and then unusual things you know we're not going to ever be producing a vodka. We're not ever probably going to be producing a gin, but what we are going to do is these unusual sorts of things, like a mesquite beans uh, spirit, a special nepales or roasted um, prickly pear or banana yucca, those sorts of spirits. Acorn. Acorn. I'm really interested she in that. So, yeah, Tammy was I'm so like, stoked about that acorn. Yes. <laughs> I want to see what happens with that. And and again, it's something we were talking about earlier. It's um, acorn is something you're probably not going to get every year. And you might have to wait a couple years to actually get a good harvest. Yes. Just because of how nature works. So that drives up the cost because you're going to have to one year go out and collect as much as you can and then process that and hopefully have enough to make a batch. It's yeah. only going to come out biannually or every other year. So have you thought about it, though, about making a vodka? Because, I mean, hashtag vodka pays the bills. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, Uh, We are, we're never going to make a vodka. Um, It's not in our, in our wheelhouse to do a a fractionating call home. I mean, that, that is the sort of modern technology that is amazing. Mm -hmm. You get an incredibly pure product out of it, but that's not what our ethos is. It's not what we're about. We're not about pure spirits. We're about the diversity of spirits and and these heritage spirits dirty spirits dirty spirits (laughs) well from a business standpoint that's why you see a a great deal of small distillers when they open up will sell uh clear spirits like a gin and a Mm -hmm. vodka and perhaps a white rum uh, because it is something you can get out immediately you know and start producing uh capital from yeah and the way that the industry seems to be going right now with with micro distilleries is that People are having a harder time now that the market is saturated with all of these small craft distilleries who are putting out their vodkas and their craft gin. How many more do we need on the market? You know, and it is a very good um, idea for a lot of these people to put these spirits out and to get that money to then uh, increase their age spirits and to have things sitting on barrels. And they can afford to do that by selling their vodka, which people love vodka. It sells. Absolutely. But... We have the luxury of being self-funded with my meager archaeology job. And building. And this is and something building that... all of our own equipment, which we were talking about this at the distillery. Um, our equipment cost us about $4,000 to build ourselves. 
And if or you buy still, that, our still by itself was four thousand dollars. Yeah. If you buy that same equipment, the most generic version of it could be fifty thousand dollars, eighty thousand dollars, and you're easily in this huge amount of debt right off the bat that you have to recoup your money, and so you sell white spirits. We Especially since you have to wait so long for T2B and state approval. That's normally at least a year, if not two. Yeah, we have the benefit of not having to do that. We can sustain ourselves because of our extremely low overhead by doing these traditional techniques. Because people were distilling on farms. Everybody was distilling in their backyard and in you know places that haven't been industrialized in the same way that the, U- that the U.S. has. They're still doing it. Right. It's not an. It doesn't have to be an expensive craft, but the way that the government mandates it, there's an expensive buy-in if you do it in a way that doesn't come from this traditional heritage knowledge. So no, we're probably not going to be doing vodka. Yeah. <laughs> not, <laughs> no, not, not a bad thing. I just yeah. it, it, as a, a business question. model. Yeah standpoint it was it was always something that you noticed because it was almost instant capital yeah uh, yes. to put back into a program and everything like that um and and, and there's plenty of people that haven't done it uh, obviously and i and i don't know if you covered this but it, it does seem to be <clears throat> not i don't know if falling out of favor is the right word but it does seem to be weakening there are people that i do know who have done that model and are seeing gradually less just income like she said with the with the complete flooding of the market with different gins and vodkas it's just it's hard to now sell a local vodka when i mean we're what we have 12 distilleries in the state and every one of them but three i think has a vodka like how do you sell a local vodka it's easy when to make capital when you're the local distillery in the state to sell a local vodka how do you sell a local flavorless, colorless, tasteless liquid when there's 12 other guys doing the And there are people thing. here who are doing Aggressive vodka. Yeah, exactly. Who are doing vodka from grain. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's, you know, a great product. Go buy their vodka. Yeah. Adventurous Stills is doing a vodka from mm-hmm. grain. Buy their vodka. Absolutely. But a bunch of other people are sourcing their spirits to get it out. So they have an mm-hmm. extremely low overhead. Um and they get that money back in from just buying source spirits and then putting out a vodka or buying those source spirits and then flavoring it as a gin and then getting that return so that they can fund their projects. And that is a perfectly valid and great way to run your business, but it's not the model for better or for worse that, that we chose to now. take. Have you guys reached out to like Chase and the people yeah. over at oh, Adventurous? Yeah. And, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked to them. Those yeah, the, awesome. they they were yeah. they've been so the community here is amazing, and I know that it's great for craft brewing, but it's also great for craft distilling, Grand Canyon um, Brewery and Distilling, uh, Adventurous Stills, Craft Works, um, Three, Three Wells, Wells here in Tucson. I mean, they've all helped us so much when we were starting our own thing, and they've bounced ideas off of us, mm-hmm. and they've been absolutely amazing and supportive and you know a rising tide raises all ships yeah when we were first getting started i was pretty much at three wells at least once a month just asking them questions about the laws about the stuff that they were doing i mean they they were the ones that when i wanted to build the still i went to them because i asked them if they could do it and they took me in the back all of their stills are hand built except for one of them the first one they bought but they have three 100 gallon stills just like i do with the the shotgun and the gatling condensers on it and i said hey great that's fantastic i didn't like i read through the book i didn't see any prohibition on doing this i just i 
I'm a year out from starting this business. I don't know if this is the path we go. And they say, yeah, do it. It's perfectly legal. Yeah. Fine. And now I've, you know, on forums that I've participated in, I tell the same thing to people. Is they come in and they say, how much money do you have to put down to do this? I've been doing this as a hobby for years. And it's like, you don't have to spend shit. You can build this fucking thing all by yeah. yourself. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's nice to know that. And that was a huge deal in us being where we are, that they could tell me and show me that that was possible, much less all the other stuff that they helped guide me with and and you as well yeah but along <laughs> those lines of like vodka pays the bills like there there is a reason why our first spirit out is going to be a cacao infused whiskey and that's because it's drinkable and it's good and it's mixable in cocktails and it's not one of these crazy unheard of things that we're going to have to really educate people about buying totally. it's something you yeah. know it's, it, it's whiskey completely and it's chocolate unique. you don't see that though we understand we understand the flavor profile but you don't see that so it makes it completely unique yeah and we like it i mean we're not compromising because it has this incredible heritage of these my ancient mayan traditions and it has this great um place in arizona history because those uh have all been translated and transmitted northward you know from the mayans to the aztecs and the aztecs didn't grow chocolate but we know the aztecs have this huge cacao tradition and that's making its way north and so we have like moles in arizona that are using chocolate and so it's a it's a spirit that has a great sense of place here but it's it's drinkable and it's accessible it's chocolate whiskey it's good very good. Oh, about that. Okay. All right. Yeah. Most most important question of the day. <laughs> what is your favorite metal band? <laughs> ah, full circle. <laughs> you do yours. I think I know what it is. Well, okay. Let me say that <laughs> I I'm completely seasonable. You know, my my is tastes metal change. Army? I do love heavy metal <laughs> army. I love heavy metal army, <laughs> and frankly, I like Tokyo Blade. Yeah, Tokyo, Tokyo Blade. Tokyo Blade's really good. I like Hellion a lot. <laughs> Zed Yago. I do love Zed Yago. Go ahead. It's it's Hellion. Hellion yeah. is mine. I that's my fucking. I fucking love <laughs> Anne Boleyn. <laughs> I love Chet Thompson. I love Ray Shank. I love all those guys. And it's actually informed our spirits a lot because we're both like super into these like badass powerful women and their mm-hmm. role in like shaping these cultures and shaping the world and how they've been so underrepresented in distilling when distilling is a women's craft and brewing is a woman's craft and we've pioneered it and cultivated it over all these millennia and so all of our spirits are named after fucking yep. badass women <laughs> and one of the fermenters is named Zadiago all of our all of the our are fermenters are made are named after either like witches or women in uh, rock and roll. Even more <laughs> black metal right there. Yes. Yeah. Tammy, who is your favorite metal band? Oh, oh yeah. Probably. Yeah. Probably my top would be Cephalic Carnage from Colorado. I mean, but I, I could probably name off 2,000 more right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Sean? How about you, Eric? Sean? Oh, man. I'll let you go first. So mine's <laughs> mine's pretty surface level. I, I, I'm into metal, uh, but uh, I've always been a huge fan of Pantera. Like Pantera's, mm-hmm. I mean, 
do love that. I mean, that's a cornerstone in in metal history. And Slipknot. I love Slipknot. Like, I'm a huge fan of Corey Taylor. You know what? That was my introduction in middle school. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I've gotten deep into it. Like, in high school, I I got into, like, uh, you know, Sepultura, DSI, and stuff like that. But it was about as deep as I got. Um, but I love Slipknot. Aww, I love like, I love Corey Taylor. I feel so bad for you right now. Why? <laughs> <laughs> because well, everybody, that's, everybody's got to start somewhere. Yeah. yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't you don't start off with death. You know, I mean, like some people you, do, but you know what I mean. Just, yeah, I most people don't. You know, and it's like I didn't get you, the you're metal. not just going to just give somebody wolves in the throne room and have yeah. them be like, "Wow, great, this is an awesome introduction." It's <laughs> like you got to like, you can't be tossed all the way in the deep end of the pool. Yeah. I didn't get into metal yeah, until Vlad I was like me 31, in. like two years ago, and got Iron Maiden. I, then I, I just eased like, me in with Iron Maiden. Then and it then was then. just like 12 <laughs> hours a day, every day, every metal band I could nothing get into. but metal. Yeah, yeah, we got engaged at your T-shirt now, Angel Witch. Love it. Love See, it. I, I grew up in the northernmost county of the Appalachian region. <laughs> okay. Like 20 minutes north of West Virginia. So my roots are like bluegrass. Like that's. Mm-hmm. I like that There's too. some yeah. bluegrass metal. <laughs> there are, yes. I mean, obviously, yeah. there has to be. Yeah. Somewhere. But Mastodon yeah. is from that area. <laughs> What's your Mastodon is from. Are they really? No yeah, yeah. oh, shit. Sean, you didn't, you didn't tell us that you're metal band. I mean, I think if we're going to, for me, I always think like, you know, when you're saying like introductions, like you're talking about like Iron Maiden and everything like that for me. I, I mean, I think the one that really like blew my tiny brain hair back was uh, Appetite for Destruction, Guns N' Roses, uh, which is still the number one selling mm-hmm. debut album of all time. Hmm. That's that. a good Jeopardy question. Exactly really why oh. like, we cannot talk about um, that in the middle that. question. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, but like, I mean, now, like, it's, you know, after having all that currently, um, was it? I mean, yeah, like Wolves in the Throne Room. I really like them a lot. Mm. Uh, but I mean, I, dive more into the like punk rock scene so mm. there's like punk, a lot of punk rock is borderline <clears throat> metal so yeah that's true well like wolf king yeah we exactly yeah see i like the i like the the heavier uh instrumental too oh like, right right like, there's uh, a lot of great progressive stuff yeah, and there's like some... russian circles and if <laughs> these then... trees could talk <laughs> he's showing us the sledger stuff the southern rock stuff well, like sometimes so a great band can be ruined by a crappy singer that is so true right mm-hmm. so you that's got... why i like grandcore because the singer is actually an instrument, an instrument yes. you're not supposed yeah. to understand the lyrics <laughs> yeah. they're actually a gutter yeah. it's like opera you don't understand what an opera singer is saying it's they're an instrument yeah. case yeah. in point Very true. so i don't like <laughs> grandcore all day what'd you say his own band. Oh. He's oh, a you great, have a great band uh, writer, terrible singer. Terrible singer. <laughs> See, What's we didn't we band? didn't know you had a metal band. I don't have a metal. I used to have a couple of punk bands in Tucson that went nowhere. One was songs. Did you play at Scrappies? This was this was after Scrappies. Uh, <laughs> I played played at um, Loud House, which is gone now. And um, fuck, what is that place on River and La Choy or something? Just oh, is that like the Irish place? Yeah, diviest bar in the but world. Anyway, you you played <laughs> punk rock in Tucson. What? <laughs> hey, so I think it's great. I mean, the, the, great. I think the great thing about just it wasn't, I mean, especially because I think that Tucson, uh, if especially if you are from the Valley and you are from Phoenix, uh, 
you tend to shit Tucson. <gasps> no. Yeah. Spoiler alert. If you didn't, didn't know, know that. Uh, but you guys have so much culture and such a rich no history. Like, oh, I just laugh at it. Because right now I think the great thing about uh, about Tucson, and in, 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 in no way is this meant to be like a dig, um, but because there aren't a whole lot of eyes down here, like for media attention, you don't really see much press going on here. It's kind of like the wild fucking west, yeah, we can and you can do whatever want. you yeah, want. Great. And it's really great that there's just these cool little pockets of amazing things down here going on, um, especially like the beer scene um, and obviously the distilling scene. Uh, but you can just do those things without this worry of like shit, like. Food and Wine Magazine is going to come through here and it's going to fuck my whole world up. Like, you know, and it's just like, you yeah, don't, we don't like, have to worry like, about it. You don't think about that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, like, you're not worried about like imbibe showing up. You wor- worry like, about knife fights in the street, not. Okay, we don't worry yeah. about knife <laughs> fights in the street. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, clarify we... that real quick. <laughs> as a public defender, we had just as much, if not less, crime than Phoenix. <laughs> so, just, not, you know. Not from what I heard. <laughs> no, but with everything being as spread out as it is, um, and with Tucson being very mm-hmm. stalwart and like, we're not doing a freeway oh, yeah. that goes across town and everything like that you still get a lot more of that like western element yeah. um that obviously when you talk about wild fermentation you have more space to do it whereas like in phoenix it's an asphalt jungle you yeah. know and so those no, are going to be as probably our distilleries in bfe and it's 10 minutes from my house in the middle of yeah town. and we yeah. live on grant and alvernon so tucsonans will know what that yeah. means <laughs> literally 10 minutes away and it's like just fucking scrub weed desert <laughs> Train tracks. Yeah, that's our distillery. Oh, I love it. it. I love Tucson. So what's next? What's what's the vision? You guys kind of painted the picture earlier. Solid fermentation. <laughs> mm. yeah. Say that in your radio voice, though. Solid state fermentation. <laughs> White Thunder's bringing you some solid fermentation. Your handle, though, is it? What it's is the your, kitten king. The kitten king. The kitten king. Yeah. yeah. I, did, I, I did a late night classic metal show here. Just had to quit it on uh, 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. And, uh, yeah, it was the Cave of the Kitten King. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. That's just my, that's just my handle. It always has been. It's the Kitten King. So we'll hopefully open next month if everything goes to plan with our printing. And, right. and then at that point, um, we need to just start making money. Please please buy our stuff. Please buy it. Please, we're, we really yeah. need you to buy it. <laughs> we're getting things on Oak. We're going to get some bourbon going. Yeah, we're, we're gonna, using... Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we we're like to, try to do this... to get that this. pecan and bourbon. That's true. Thing, we've yeah. got our, you know, we've got our smoked varieties coming up, but we also like... Smoking programs are close, yeah. Yeah, to, we've got full-size barrels from Kelvin Cooperage, which is an awesome Cooperage mm-hmm. um, facility. And so we're aging on 53-gallon barrels, and you can try that two years from now. <laughs> Mark that on your calendar. Yeah, so we've yes. got that to look forward to. In the meantime, we need to get into a bigger facility. Yeah. Uh, we just absolutely, we're out of space. We're completely out of space. Uh, we couldn't even record the podcast in our facility yeah. because we had no chairs <laughs> and no table. It <laughs> worked think, out perfectly. Yeah. Yes. No, it's great. Yeah. Where are you looking to do distribution? Where should people be looking for these bottles when the TTB finally sends everything back? Okay. Uh, Ultimately, uh, it'll be first in Tucson, of course. Um, We are, we have an arrangement with Lucas Annable of the natural wine company. Um, He's going to be our distributor. We're also self-distributing. So we're going to be getting in 
bottle stores and in restaurants in Tucson and then merging up towards Phoenix and the broader community. But I mean, we're local. We're staying yeah. Arizona first. We're not looking to expand beyond that. Not for a long ass time. Awesome. Not until the museum opens, right? Exactly. Yeah. The open air <laughs> yeah. museum. Open yeah. air. Yes. More details to come on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cotton and Copper, you guys, Sean, Tammy, thanks for joining. And have you guys been to their place yet? I have never been. I've only, like, I consumed the, the photos on <laughs> We Instagram. should have brought food yeah. with us. Ah, uh, yes, you should. Ah, yeah. <laughs> 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 screw that up. was an option. I would have reminded you, like, every 20 minutes. <laughs> you got to go. Got to go to Cotton and Copper next time you guys are up up in yeah, no, the valley. You do. That's our That's pilgrimage. Yeah. That's what's planned. We were really excited that yeah. you guys cared about us. Very much so. And I would actually like to follow up this podcast sometime with something where get deep into your archaeology background and what brought the interest in ingredients because I nerd out on that super hard and I could probably talk to you for like three hours about that. I so. think we need a follow up with just you two. Turn the I mics think, on and just. I do think it from we need the to field. do. I think yeah. we need to do a follow up. Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe when once the bottles come out, we'll sh- I'll share a bottle. Yeah. And I'll and just, just sit here and record. Act like I'm working and have you guys it. talk. And I'll just it. drink. <laughs> Me and Vlad and Sean will just drink some juniper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And we can all take a nap. Guys, thanks so much. This thank was you. awesome. Yes, thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't too bad, was it? Okay. No, it was fantastic. It was. I'm. It was excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, thanks for listening to the episode. I got a little something special. I've got, I'm giving away three of the beer can uh, style glasses, three of the beer, beer can style beer glasses with the Tap That AZ logo on it, uh, compliments of AZ Pro Prints. So if you are one of the first three people to email me at eric at tapthataz.com, the first three people will get one of those glasses. I'll get that out to you. So Appreciate your guys' support, as always, and always remember, stay awesome. <laughs>